0: It's time to take the quiz. 5 questions, 5 minutes a day, 5 days a week.
1: Take the quiz every weekday at the quiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course listen to the quiz at the quiz.fox.
2: Now from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson show with Guy Benson.
3: It is Monday, October 31st, 2022. Happy Halloween. And welcome into the Guy Benson Show. I'm your host, Guy Benson, political editor at townhall.com and a Fox News contributor. Glad to have you all here every single weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern time. That's when we air live. If you can't listen as we air, we have a podcast. It is free on demand every day. GuyBensonShow.com for more information or FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Shoot us a follow on social media, Twitter and Instagram, at Guy Benson Show. Here's our lineup today. Tom Bevan will walk us through some of the latest polling as we are eight days away from the midterm elections. Tom Bevan of Real Clear Politics is here later on this hour. Molly Hemingway is going to join us in the next hour. And beyond that, in our final hour, Howie Kurtz as well. I will be discussing with both of them the media response to this attack at the home of the Pelosi's that is now just—we're getting some breaking news here that the FBI and the feds have filed charges against the suspect. And the FBI is saying in these charging documents that they believe the suspect planned to try to kidnap Speaker Pelosi. So that's at least now an emerging motive, potential motive here. The way that this has been covered— Over the weekend to me is just absolutely unconscionable. We are glad that the suspect is in custody. He should pay a very heavy price. We are glad that there was apparently a successful surgery and that Mr. Pelosi is recuperating. We wish him the very best and a full recovery. The rush to assign political blame has been so transparent and obviously ideological that it drives me up a wall. I don't want to spend too much time. Like an inordinate amount of time today. Talking about it. Because I really believe. That the Democrats and the media. Would love nothing more than for us to all be arguing. About whether like Republican. Run of the mill. 2022 election ads. Are responsible for this. Psycho in San Francisco. Attacking Speaker Pelosi's husband with a hammer. A guy who has a very strange mix of left and right wing conspiratorial beliefs who apparently has deep mental illness and drug problems, they decided that complexity could all be shoehorned into one storyline, which is Republican rhetoric, which is the storyline that they always like to run with over and over again, whether the facts fit the pattern or not. And when the facts very clearly don't fit the pattern, in fact, cut in the opposite direction, then we get a very big, oh, never mind, let's move on shrug from the news media collectively. And we have seen that play out day after day now. So I'm going to try to balance my anger and disgust with the news media with the need to cover other things that are more important as opposed to this storyline that they are going – as much as they can wall-to-wall with for reasons that I think are obviously political. There is nowhere close to this amount of coverage, for example, of the Kavanaugh assassination attempt a few months ago. Didn't even get a mention on the Sunday shows a few days after it happened, except for Fox News Sunday. And these people stand there. They tell us that, oh, this is a very concerning attack on democracy, and it's fueled by right-wing rhetoric. And they say these things before they have any complete picture of what was going on, what the facts of the case were. And again, when there's a fact pattern that's similar, but on the other side of the aisle, their side, their tribe, it is downplayed, sort of dismissed as a weird lone wolf strange and upsetting fascination and then they move on there are two sets of rules seems to be the case a lot of the time in our politics these days and it drives a lot of people absolutely up the wall they see it very clearly every day some days are more acute than others but the double standards are glaring they're right in front of us and the people who purport to be The truth tellers in our society and condescend to the rest of us, they insist, oh, no, you're the crazy ones. We've got this. We are the journalists. You are the problem. And the lectures come from on high. But all they are are grubby little partisans themselves. In nicer suits. That's unfortunately far too often the case, the reality about our news media. Of the nicer suits, at least, are for the TV journalists. not sure about the print journalists. Anyway, here I have now gone on prattling about this when I said I didn't want to do too much on it. We will get reaction from Molly Hemingway and Howie Kurtz coming up later. I want to begin the show by responding and reacting to a few things that we heard over the weekend from a former president. Not Donald Trump, not that former president, the one before him. The Democrats aren't all that eager for the most part to be seen with the current president or vice president but they are very happy to appear alongside Barack Obama on the campaign trail because he'll draw a crowd, the base loves him, the media loves him, and he is obviously much better in terms of speaking and just being sort of like a retail politician on the stump than Joe Biden is. Now, that being said, Barack Obama has never really shown much of an aptitude for getting other people elected. He's good at getting himself elected. That is not really translated into Obama coattails. 2008, sure. But 2010, even his reelection, 2012, 2014, 2016, not so much. So over the weekend, he was down in Georgia on behalf of Stacey Abrams and Raphael Warnock, of course. And he had a few things to say. And rather than make some of the easy points, against Biden and Harris. I mean, these are sometimes very easy targets. I'd rather tackle some of the, at least in his mind, better points from the Democrats' favored top surrogate, former President Barack Obama. For instance, he was talking about election denialism and election trutherism and going in against the Republicans on this. In cut 23, here was Obama. Listen.
4: First time I ran for Congress, I was already in the state legislature. I ran for Congress. I lost the primary by 30 points. Got whooped, whooped. It was embarrassing. Had to go out the next day. Had a big L on my forehead. And and let me tell you, I was frustrated too. You know what I didn't do though? I didn't claim that the election was rigged. I didn't try to stop votes from being counted. I didn't incite a mob to storm the Capitol.
3: All right, so that's a point he's making about Trump. Fair enough to some extent, but is he aware that he is giving that speech, making those points in the state of Georgia where he is campaigning on behalf of Stacey Abrams? Stacey Abrams is an election denier. Stacey Abrams has lied repeatedly about her election loss four years ago which she claimed wrongly was a stolen election. She is one of the most high profile election truther, election denier, whatever term you want to use. She's one of the most high profile examples of that in the whole country. And Obama goes down to campaign with her and for her to support her campaign. And he's going off about people who won't admit that they lost an election. Did he like forget where he was? Did he forget who was standing with him or who who he's there on behalf of? If Barack Obama is interested in going to Georgia and campaigning for someone running for governor who accepts election results and doesn't sow bogus doubts about the integrity of our elections, he should be endorsing and campaigning for Brian Kemp, the Republican. Of course, he won't do that because he's a partisan Democrat and it's always about power for them. Same with the Republicans. They just pretend that it's not the case. They just do the whole country over party thing, all this high-minded nonsense. They are bare-knuckle, partisan, power-hungry people at their core. Both sides are. They just pretend that they're not. But he's not doing a very good job of pretending it, right? If democracy and the integrity of our elections, if that is what matters... And he's saying, you know, what he didn't do is claim the election was rigged or any of that. He said that then if that was truly the priority of one Barack Obama, then he would go nowhere near Stacey Abrams, an infamous liar about election results. He'd be stumping for Brian Kemp, who took a lot of fire, even from with his own party. Former President Trump for not. Trying to steal the election in Georgia. He'd also be down there for Brad Raffensperger, the secretary of state, a Republican. Who withstood huge amounts of pressure from Trump himself, for example. But no, that is not what Barack Obama was doing. He was in Georgia to try to get Democrats elected, including one of the Democrats who is most associated with election lying and election denial, Stacey Abrams. And yet he went on that little riff anyway. It's pretty amazing. Then he was talking about expertise in politics. And he had this very elaborate analogy about hiring a pilot to fly the plane. And do we want Herschel Walker, a football star, to be flying the plane or something like that? Here is Obama, cut 22.
4: Some of you may not remember, but Herschel Walker was a heck of a football player. I I mean, some of you are too young to remember, but in college he was amazing. One of the best running backs of all time. But, but, but here's the question. Does that make him the best person to represent you in the U.S. Senate? Does that make him equipped to weigh in on the critical decisions about our economy and our foreign policy and our future? That, let, let's do a thought experiment. Let's say you're at the airport, and you see Mr. Walker, and you say, Hey, there's Herschel Walker, Heisman winner. Let's have him fly the plane.
3: Okay, so do you want the football player flying the plane at the airport? Okay. I don't think sitting in the United States Senate and casting votes is the same as flying an airplane with like lots of years of rigorous training required as to not crash a plane and kill people, but I think. We kind of get the point that he's making about expertise. Now, in this strained analogy, is Raphael Warnock the pilot? Right? Would you say, hey, there's my pastor. Let's have him fly the plane. What? Where would Raphael Warnock pilot the plane? Maybe over his ex-wife's foot? The police get called? And she tearfully calls him a great actor? Remember that? I know we don't talk about that, just the Herschel baggage, not the Warnock baggage. And also, with all due respect to Barack Obama, who was a two-term president, what was his background? What was his expertise exactly? He was a community organizer for years. Then he got himself elected to the state legislature in Illinois, where he often voted present on controversial topics. Then he gave a big... Well-received, smooth speech at a convention and got elected to the U.S. Senate in Illinois. Shortly thereafter said he would not run for president in 2008 because he wouldn't know what he was doing. and He's a big believer in people knowing what they're doing when they become president. Then he said, never mind. I know what I'm doing and ran for president and run twice and won twice. Like, oh, here's the community organizer. Let's have him fly the plane? Well, he flew the plane for the whole country for for eight years. I just don't really know if this whole example that he's trying to play out really works. Implicit, by the way, in all of it, is that Herschel Walker doesn't know what he's doing, doesn't know what he's talking about although he managed to beat Raphael Warnock in their only debate, so there's that. But Obama's saying, "You really, you need someone who's in command who knows what they're doing. You're going to send them to the U.S. Senate, right? Uh, That's not Herschel Walker. You need someone who knows what they're doing if they're going to go and help fly the plane of state, if you will, as a member of the United States Senate. That might be a little bit more convincing coming from Obama if he didn't have on his itinerary this week a little jaunt up to Pennsylvania to campaign for John Fetterman for U.S. Senate. What, Herschel Walker shouldn't fly the plane, but you want want pilot John Fetterman getting behind the controls? How does that sound? What if you heard a little, uh, ladies and gentlemen, from the pilot, from the flight deck announcement from John Fetterman? How would that make you feel these days? Apparently great if you're Barack Obama who wants to put John Fetterman in the U.S. Senate. It's just incoherent. He hates election denial, but he's in Georgia campaigning for Stacey Abrams. Herschel Walker doesn't have the brain capacity and the expertise to be a senator, but John Fetterman does. Try to make sense of it, and you can't unless the sense is this. Barack Obama is a Democrat. He wants the Democrats to have control and more power, and they will put anyone in into positions of power if it means that they get their agenda through. That's it. It is not more complicated. There's no country over party. It's party over everything. And if that means being absolutely hypocritical on some issues and putting in totally unqualified people or deeply flawed people elsewhere, so be it. That's the mentality. Herschel Walker reacted to this. In fact, I'll play you some of the audio. It's a pretty funny reaction. We'll get to that as soon as we come back. Just getting started. A brand new week here on The Guy Benson Show. Don't go anywhere. We will be right back.
2: The Guy Benson Show. More next. The world of business moves fast. Stay on top of it with the Fox Business Rundown every Monday and Friday. Listen to the Fox Business Rundown starting May 20th at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts.
3: I'm Guy Benson. We're back. In the last segment, we played that sound of former President Obama in Georgia, do you want uh, Herschel Walker flying the plane? The pilot? Well, here's Herschel Walker at an event over the weekend responding to the former president. Cut 25.
5: President Obama was here last night. Y'all saw him. He said, I'm a celebrity. Yeah. <laughs> he got that one wrong, didn't he? I'm not a celebrity. I'm that warrior for God. And uh, he, got, he got something else wrong, too. You remember two years ago, he told us to vote for Joe Biden, didn't he? <laughs> He got that one wrong, did he not? Hey, he got that one wrong. He lost twice to George already, hasn't he? So I think he probably need to set this one out. Don't you think, so? He probably need to set this one out, because let me tell you, this one's so funny. He said that he wouldn't get me to be a pilot. I wouldn't hire him to be a pilot either, will you? Hey I, hey, I haven't taken my pilot license, have I? So he got that one wrong. And then I tell you what he will hire me to do before he hire a uh, but uh, Warnock, I bet he'll hire me to be on his debate team before you get worn out when now.
3: I mean, that is uh, he's, he's coming out firing there, coming in hot. Pilot Herschel. I think my favorite line was, didn't is this the same Barack Obama who came to Georgia and told us to vote for Joe Biden? Maybe he needs to sit this one out <laughs> based on the outcomes that we're seeing in this country. He's like, would we hire Barack Obama to be a pilot? Kind of asking the same question that I just did. What exactly is this pilot analogy? Did we think this one completely through, Mr. President? Maybe not. The crowd loved it. Obama, of course, loved it because it was him saying it. We'll see what the voters of Georgia have to say in eight days. More on the Peach State coming up. But first, we'll get to polls with Tom Bevan when we return.
2: You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson.
3: We're back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Thanks for being here. GuyBensonShow.com. Our website podcast is free every day. And with us now, Tom Bevan, co-founder and president of RealClearPolitics.com, at Tom RCP on Twitter. Tom, I have to ask you, just quickly, if the rumors are true, and if Twitter starts charging people... To have the blue check mark as a verified person on Twitter. Are you forking up the money every month or are you uh, shedding the little emblem?
6: I, I would not fork out $20 for that blue check mark. I'm not really sure how important that is to begin with. So
3: <laughs> I, I tend to agree. <clears throat> I, I like to be able to show people, like, if there's fake accounts or whatever, like I'm the actual person, but I don't care that much. I'm not spending my own money, at least out of my own pocket. Uh, we'll see if that. Decision comes down the pike. That's uh, one of the many things out there in the ether about Twitter amid the huge, insane outcry about Elon Musk taking the reins. We'll ask Howie Kurtz about that a little bit later on in the show. All right, Tom, let's uh, talk about the midterm elections. I would like for you to help us maybe square a circle that I'm having some trouble with this morning. I woke up to the following news. Number one, Republicans are expanding their ad buys and their investments into multiple districts that Joe Biden won by 20 points. And relatedly, the DGA is coming in for Kathy Hochul with a last minute, like, save her bacon ad buy as the polls have gotten very close in New York. And then on the other side of the ledger, we have a slew of Senate polls from The New York Times and Siena that would suggest the Democrats are in good shape. They're going to win Arizona. They're going to win Georgia. They're going to win Pennsylvania. And they could hang on to Nevada, too. All is well in Democrat world in the Senate, but Kathy Hochul needs help from the National Democrats in New York and Republicans in the House are uh, spending money now in, in Biden plus 20 districts. I have trouble reconciling these two fact patterns. Can you help?
6: Well, I mean, there's there's two possible uh I guess, scenarios in play here. One is that you have a divided electorate along the lines of 2018 where Democrats are going to take a beating in the House but manage to overperform in the Senate as Republicans did, right? Trump lost 40 seats. GOP lost 40 seats in the House but won two seats in the Senate. Um, the other scenario is that there there is no blue wave in the Senate and that the New York Times polls are overstating the case for Democrats. And those, And I would say... If you look at those polls, there are a couple interesting things about them. When you look at the dates on those, I mean, they, they mentioned in the story that, you know, I think two thirds of the sample of the Pennsylvania poll were taken before the Fetterman debate last week. Uh, the Nevada poll is from the 19th through the 24th. So that poll ended already a week ago. Um, we have other data that is more recent than that, showing Laxall ahead. head. So. Um, I just don't, I'm not necessarily, and then you look at the New York Times, Siena, their, their performance over the last few cycles um, hasn't been great, has overstated Democratic support. So, listen, I mean, I think we have to take it all in and evaluate mm-hmm. it and, and, and try and make sense of it. Um, but right now, you know, when I look at the generic congressional ballot, when I look at the other thing that I pointed out on Twitter, you know, in, this, in those <clears throat> New York Times polls, that Joe Biden's approval rating in Arizona is 36%. In Nevada, it's 39%. In Georgia, it's 38%. And in Pennsylvania, they say it's 42%. So you've got Mark Kelly running 15 points ahead of Joe Biden's approval rating in Arizona. Is that possible? Sure, it's possible. Is it likely? Mm, I'm not sure he's, run, you know, it's, it's a big deal for a candidate to run, you know, double digits ahead of uh, the president's approval rating in, a, in an off-year midterm election. I mean, that is a That is a heavy ask for for a lot of these incumbent Democrats. So, again, possible, but not very likely.
3: Yeah. It's like, you know, what's this electorate actually going to look like? And are those huge requisite splits that you're talking about realistic if the electorate is inclined to not be terribly pro-democratic this year, which seems like a relatively safe bet? And you mentioned Pennsylvania. And now we're really in the weeds, but the New York Times-Siena poll, as you pointed out, two-thirds of the sample was before the debate. The final day of polling was after the debate, and there was a marked shift in the race and in the results in that one day of post-debate polling. And, Tom, that would at least align with what we're seeing in some other polls out of Pennsylvania that were on the ground and in the field after the debate, three or four of them in a row showing Dr. Oz leading by two to three points post-debate now what you see is people saying oh well some of these are republican polls or polls that we don't know as well whereas the New York Times and Siena that is a a well-known pollster how do you sort through that because yes everyone's heard of the New York Times and they've got their polling partner Siena but just because that is you know has has a a legacy or some sort of you know sense of prestige around it doesn't mean that it's a better polster with better outcomes. And you sort of referenced in recent cycles, New York Times, Siena has had some real trouble polling, especially in the Midwest.
6: Right. Yeah, look, I mean, so we have one poll, Insider Advantage, that was uh, in Pennsylvania that was taken after the debate showed Oz up three. The, the polls you mentioned, there's one called a group called WIC, uh, which is a new firm, and another firm called Coefficient, which is uh, a new firm. We do not include those in our average. And those are two polls that are that show Oz ahead. And so we still have Fetterman ahead in, in our average, um, and that includes the New York Times, Santa poll. But this is one of the reasons, guy, that we're doing this polling accountability project, because you know, it's it's important that pollsters are held accountable for their results and their accuracy. And and, you know, somebody's gonna be right and somebody's gonna be wrong. And I'm I'm sure, you know, the pollsters will say or you know, the New York Times—if they get it wrong—if Oz wins, they'll say, "Well, you know, we had a margin of error." And uh, you know, if Oz wins by a point or two—I don't know what the margin of error is on that on that poll they released today, offhand—but you know, there will be pollsters that sort of fudge that and say, "Well, you know, if you take into account the margin of error, we were still—you know—within reason, we were close. It wasn't like we got it wrong." Well, you know, that's not necessarily the case. You release a poll a week before election day, saying that. Fetterman's up five points, and you know that two-thirds of your sample were taken before a pretty consequential event that took place in this race. Mm-hmm. Um, that is not best practices, as far as I'm concerned, okay? Even if you alert the public to that fact, it's, you know, I, that, that's, that's a situation where you either don't release that poll, or you decide to sample after the, after the debate, uh, take another two-day sample and drop the first two days so you have a better picture. Again, that's just one example of of the New York Times and, and Siena, Again, not not doing uh, their best to make sure that their polls are most accurate. Now, maybe it will be Fetterman plus plus five. We don't know. We're not going to know any of this stuff until, you know, November ninth. But, but the point is that uh, you know these pollsters need to be held accountable, and that's one of the reasons that we've launched this pollster uh, accountability initiative.
3: Yeah, I would just point out in Pennsylvania in twenty twenty. At the very end of October into November, just looking at some of these polls, ABC News, Washington Post, Biden up seven. New York Times, Siena, Biden up six. Monmouth, Biden up seven. Uh, let's see. NBC News, Maris, Biden up five. And of course, Biden won by a point. So there were a couple outliers on the other side that had Trump up one or two, which was actually closer than than the polling miss and some of the famous big boy pollsters. That was just last cycle in Pennsylvania there's another related thing here that I did want to ask you about, and I'll give Nate Cohn of the New York Times some credit for this, again, being transparent, although he had this pulled out of him by a Republican operative who asked a question on Twitter. It was just another another polling person. I'm not sure if it was a Republican operative. Just to correct myself, they put out their numbers in these Senate races, the Times and Siena today, and the question posed to Nate Cohn of the New York Times – were there any trends in partisan non-response bias? What are the characteristics of the voters who wanted Republican control but supported Democratic candidates? Because there was, again, this like, gap where the Republicans led on the generic ballot in all of the states that we just mentioned, all four of them that they polled. But the Democrats were tighter ahead in the actual head-to-head matchups. And one of the – and again, we're very much in the weeds, Tom, but we're in crunch time for an election, so I think it's OK. One of the big – Question marks. One of the big you could even call it maybe a crisis in polling is a lot of people simply will not respond to polls. They won't do it. They certainly won't sit there for 20 to 25 minutes answering question after question. And it does appear as though Republican leaning voters disproportionately are among those who will not sit for the polling. And so you get these skewed samples. Now, I am skeptical of unskewing polls because it got burned by that in 2012, a decade ago. But now we have a body of work in recent cycles, the last six, eight years, where this has cropped up over and over again. Here's what Nate Cohn said in response. He said that white registered Democrats were 28% more likely to respond to their polling calls than white registered Republicans. He said that is nothing like our national polling and quite a bit like 2020, when party waiting was insufficient, he said that's a troubling sign for non-response bias. Translate that polling speak for us, Tom.
6: <laughs> I, I mean, it basically confirms what you just said, which is, you know, Republicans, particularly white registered Republicans in the state of Pennsylvania, are not answering the phone calls and white registered Democrats are. And so you end up with if you make a thousand phone calls and twenty five percent more of the white uh, Democrats, well, yeah, I mean, just saying 20, okay, 28% more answer the phone. You're going to end up with a skewed sample. I mean, you just are. And so the problem is there's no, you can't wait for that. You can't adjust for that. It is one of those things. And again, this gets back to, you go back to Trafalgar. He's a Republican pollster. He's been one of the more accurate over the past few cycles. and One of the things that he says when he when he talks about what he does and how he does things differently and how he gets people to talk to him, one of the main things he says is he asks five questions. That's it. They don't go into it. They don't have people because he knows people aren't going to sit on the phone for 20 minutes and answer all these questions. You get five questions. That's it. Yep. So he gets a horse race number. He gets a job approval rating number, and he's out, and he does this across multiple platforms. Uh, to you know, make sure that he's reaching all of the requisite folks, and and that's you know that's been part of his secret sauce. And some of these other pollsters just you know aren't doing that, and I think that's that's what's skewing those numbers. Now, I would also say you know the the narrative to which Nate Cohn sort of put this into it, this idea that you know the generic ballot is. Favors Republicans, but um, <clears throat> you know, but the Democrats are ahead. Is this idea that all these candidates in these states, these Republican candidates, are flawed, right? Blake Masters and Herschel Walker and Mehmet Oz and Adam Laxalt, um, you know, that is, and that's been the narrative this entire time from the mainstream yes. media and certainly from Democrats. Um, and so, to them, this makes this makes sense. It makes these numbers make sense. But for um, when you look at these numbers versus the other polls. Uh, you know, you can question that narrative, and and when you look at Raphael Warnock, for example, uh, in in Georgia, has been at forty seven percent in most polls. I think that I think the New York Times poll has him at forty nine. Um, Catherine Cortez Masto is at forty seven in Nevada. So um, it's it's not necessarily true that these Republican candidates are, you know, being held down by by personality flaws or character or baggage or any of those things.
3: Well, and the Atlanta Journal-Constitution poll that just came out today has Warnock at 45 and down a point to Herschel Walker. So another little uh, piece of grist for the mill. Last question on the polling, Tom. And our guest is Tom Bevan from RealClearPolitics.com. As we nerd out here on data, one of the other things that you see political obsessives screaming at each other about is the congressional ballot, the generic congressional ballot. And often I'm quite certain that you're aware of this. You have people of a certain political persuasion saying real clear politics is fake news because their averages are better for Republicans than the real ones like 538, And I think there's maybe one other one, NBC. How do you guys explain and justify the differences that you guys have the Republicans up by close to three points, I think, on the generic ballot on average, whereas the other ones, it's just like barely ahead, a fraction of a point. What explains that disparity?
6: Well, they use polls that we don't use. I mean, they're using this big village poll, which is an online poll. Um, They're using a Reuters-Ipsos poll, which is a registered voter poll. So they've got all these other things in there. I mean, but again, you go look at our average, and we've got 11 or 12 polls in there that have been taken over the last two weeks. And my answer to that is, go look at those polls. And you know what? Say you don't like Trafalgar. You think they're Republican. Say you don't like Rasmussen. You think they're Republican. Say you don't even like Insider Advantage because you think they're Republican. Strip those polls out and tell me what you, tell me what the average comes out to. right? We've got NBC News in there. We've got Politico. We've got even the Democratic firms. Data for Progress, a Democratic polling firm, has Republicans plus four. Um, Democracy Corps, Stan Greenberg's outfit, another Democratic polling firm, has Republicans plus two. So this idea that somehow we're cherry-picking Republican polls uh, – no, not even remotely close. We're using – there are some polls that we're not using because of very valid reasons. right? We're not using – we have two registered voter polls in our in our generic congressional ballot, and I, I'm even uncomfortable with those. And one of them favors Democrats by about five points, and the other one I think is uh, – it favors Republicans by, by four, I think. And I don't even like to have those in there. I'd just as soon strip those out. But, again, if we stripped out the Politico – Morning consult poll because it's registered voters, you know, it's Dems plus four something. People would cry foul and say, oh, you know, RCP is cherry picking this data. So, so we're leaving those in there, but at the same time, I mean, look. So I just don't, I ignore that stuff because the people who are making those accusations don't know what they're talking about. And it's just, you know,
3: that's the reason why I asked the question is because you're transparent about it and you just gave a totally cogent explanation that makes sense to me. We had Robert Cahaley last week from Trafalgar. He is uber transparent about what they do. I think that is a feature, not a bug. That's why I asked the question. I think people can then draw their own conclusions. Then soon enough, we'll have actual results. And then the polling will speak for itself one way or another. Tom Bevan, we've got to leave it there for now. Co-founder and president at RealClearPolitics.com. Tom, always enjoy it. Thank you. Thanks, Guy. And we will be right back. Fresh
2: conservative talk. Guy Benson Show.
0: Inflation is not going up due to government policies Inflation is going up due to Wall
3: Street decisions. It's the Guy Benson Show. We haven't heard from her in a while, have we? AOC. Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. We don't talk about her because if you ever do and you criticize her, it's because you want to date her, according to her. I can assure you I don't. I think my husband would probably agree. That there she was on MSNBC informing us very helpfully... That inflation, quote, is not going up due to government policies. It's those uh, greedy Wall Street guys or whatever. Well, that's interesting. On one hand, you have a backbench member of Congress. On the other hand, you have a Democratic economist, former Treasury secretary and former director of the National Economic Council in Larry Summers, who, like other Democratic economists, have indeed pointed the finger directly at government policies including government spending that she voted for as heavily contributing to our soaring inflation rates. So I'll just leave it up to you, America, right? You can listen to AOC and that analysis and just be like, yep, yeah, I believe her assertion or Mary or maybe Larry Summers and that crew of Dem economists know a little bit more. I don't know, your call. Another hour coming up on the Guy Benson show, Molly Hemingway is here straight ahead.
2: from the most powerful city in the world. Unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative. Guy Benson Show.
3: Welcome to a brand new hour of the Guy Benson Show from our Tony Snow Studios in Washington DC. I'm Guy Benson. Glad to have you here. GuyBensonShow.com is our website podcast is free every day on demand when the show is over, the whole thing. No charge to you. Fox News alert as we get going here in the middle hour. The Dow closing down today, 127 points in the red, closing out at 32,734. We welcome back to the Airwaves now Molly Hemingway, editor-in-chief at The Federalist, Fox News contributor, author of two best-selling books, most recently Rigged, and she is at Mz Hemingway on twitter molly if you have to get charged monthly to keep the blue check mark are you paying
1: i think it depends on what you get for first of all it depends on if it's actually twenty dollars a month because then definitely no and then also (laughs) what you get for the payment i would be happy to pay something for certain features but it just really depends what about you
3: I'm probably a no. I, I don't think I'm paying out of my own pocket just to keep a blue check mark. If there's other stuff, like I'm open to that. And if, let's say, one or both of my employers feel like it's important for me to have it for some reason, then I'd be more than happy to expense it. <laughs> but I think, in terms of my own personal cash, I, I'm not sure I would invest any amount of money on a monthly basis just to have the check mark. That, that's sort of my initial inclination.
1: I will say i would had a habit of, just on principle, blocking any and all advertisers on Twitter. I've been doing this for years. Sometimes it was because they actually annoyed me with their advertising. Sometimes I just didn't want Twitter to make money. And since Elon bought it, I've actually taken a break from blocking the advertisers that are promoted in oh. my feed.
3: So. All right. So there's uh, at least one woman changing and altering her consumption or at least her usage habits on Twitter because of the Elon takeover – Molly, I do want to ask you primarily about a story that has made me so frustrated all weekend long. And I talked about it a little bit at the jump today in the first hour. I also don't want to just take up huge chunks of time of you know valuable on-air time right before an election playing into the hands of the media and the Democrats who want us all talking about this terrible incident in San Francisco at the Pelosi home. I see that on our two competitors right now, CNN is talking about the Pelosi attack. MSNBC is talking about the Pelosi attack. Fox, we're talking about the midterms and the dynamics of the midterms. Look, obviously it's news if someone breaks into the Speaker's house and assaults her husband. And there were charges filed just today while we were on the air. That news broke. The FBI says that the suspect wanted to kidnap uh, kidnapped the Speaker of the House. She wasn't home and ended up having this this strange confrontation and then it turned violent with the Speaker's husband. There are details that were reported by the press that have since been clarified or retracted. There's still stuff about the timeline here that is very strange to me overall, but it looks like this was someone with bad intentions who showed up to try to hurt the Speaker, ended up assaulting her husband. It's awful. I hope he spends a lot of time in prison for a very serious assault. We are just learning today, Molly, within minutes of, you know, just minutes ago, that there was at least an intention on this guy's part to do harm to Speaker Pelosi. We don't know why. We don't know exactly what the motive was. As you go through and look at this man's background, and I realize this is a big preamble to my question, but I think it's important to lay some of this out, Some journalists are actually doing the legwork of going around and finding things out about this man who, according to our colleagues here at Fox, is an illegal immigrant who overstayed his visa. He's Canadian. He's lived in the San Francisco Bay Area for a long time. He's in this, like, left-wing hippie commune. He's done a bunch of nudist protests against war and other things. He also has posted a bunch of crazy conspiratorial Content, Some of which might be categorized as right wing. Some might be categorized as more left wing. It seems like he's just all over the map. People who know him, including an ex, say that he is deeply mentally ill. He thought he was Jesus Christ for the better part of a year. He's also gone on rants against Christians. Uh, There's apparently some very serious drug use and maybe a drug addled situation. That is a very complicated backdrop to this incident involving this individual almost none of which was reflected in the national coverage of what happened. They just skipped, Molly, they skipped the journalism and straight to the blame game that because it was Speaker Pelosi's house, it must be political violence and it must be right-wing political violence and it must be inspired by right-wing or Republican rhetoric and anti-Pelosi TV commercials or whatever. And, I mean, they – it was like nanoseconds from the attack happening – to the finger-pointing starting, totally independent from any evidence, which is still up in the air in a lot of respects. And, Molly, it drives me nuts because they do it every single time. When the fact pattern doesn't actually fit their narrative, they don't care. And when the fact pattern actually does sort of fit their narrative, but in reverse, they ignore it and drop the story as quickly as possible. And I'm just sort of beside myself when I see this. It's like, exhibit A – of why I think there's a lot of deserved, deep-seated contempt and mistrust for a whole lot of the news media. And with that, I will give you the floor because I've been ranting here.
1: Well, I do think it would be very frustrating to watch what the media did if you still had any confidence in their ability to report news. i have given up on that a long time ago, so it, it almost doesn't frustrate me. It's just more what I expect, like if they try to assassinate Brett Kavanaugh, That's a story that doesn't even get put on the front page of The Washington Post. If uh, some guy tries to go after the Pelosi's, it's drop everything you're doing, cover nothing else every day, all day, until we get through the election. And, you know, I would hope everyone would hate any kind of violence against political figures, and they should. I think it's a little frustrating for people that San Francisco is— Dealing with all sorts of crime, similar to this type of crime. And what I mean by that is that this guy is clearly mentally disturbed. It it would not be unreasonable to think it's from a lifetime of very hard drug use. That's the kind of crime we're seeing in the homeless population or the um, less housed populations of San Francisco. People are having all sorts of difficulties with break-ins that don't even get responded to by the cops out there. There's, like, the defund the police movement. And you've had corporations having to flee San Francisco. And you don't get the same level of concern for that when it's just normal people who are being terrorized by this type of situation as you do when it's, when it's this individual. And, I mean, it should be bigger news when the Speaker of the House is targeted, but sure. not this much bigger news relative to what most Americans in big cities have been dealing with for a few years now.
3: There's also, I'm sure you saw or have seen clips, Margaret Brennan at CBS just hounding the NRCC chairman. Why are you running ads? Why are you saying fire Pelosi? Why are you using these images it's like that? Like you must stop campaigning. We're eight days out from an election. You must stop campaigning, uh, campaigning against the unpopular speaker of the House because reasons. And like they don't show their work. They don't connect the dots. They don't actually establish these things. They just. Say it. Meanwhile, it's just much more of a loosey-goosey shrug. Oh, well, isn't that a a strange, unfortunate, uh, you know, rogue person whenever there's an example of media uh, or rather political violence in the other direction? I hate to bring her into it, but I think we have to grapple with this a little bit. Over the summer and late in the spring, we witnessed – a whole string of terrorist attacks against pro-life pregnancy centers across the country. Vandalism, threats, fire bombings, uh, all sorts of menacing, really disturbing stuff. And the Democrats, of course, were just turning their rhetoric up to 11, as they so often do on so many things. And so incendiary rhetoric all over the place and then incendiary devices thrown into buildings that then burned. And it wasn't just one or two. It was a whole bunch of them. And Speaker Pelosi was asked about it. And she clearly was annoyed by the question, would not even summon a, a minor condemnation. She just doubled down on her abortion stance and basically told the media, we're done here. Just as a flashback, this was Speaker Pelosi a few months ago, cut 17.
1: Actually, as far as the abortion case is concerned, yeah. there has been a number of attacks on uh, churches,
5: on, on crisis pregnancy centers. Republicans are going after Democrats for not
1: saying anything, and they're saying that, that your rhetoric is contributing to these attacks on this crisis pregnancy.
5: Well, let me just say this. A woman has a right to choose, to live up to her responsibility. It's up to her, her doctor, her family, her husband, her, her significant other, and her God. Uh, th- this talk of politicizing all of this i think is something uniquely american and not right other countries ireland italy mexico have had legislative uh, initiatives uh, to expand a woman's right uh, to choose very catholic countries i'm a very catholic person and i believe in every woman's right to make her own decisions Any other questions on another subject? Because I'm not going to be talking about that
3: anymore. I'm not going to be talking about that anymore. Any other questions on any other subject? I'm not going to be talking about that anymore. She didn't address, Molly, at all the program of terrorist violence against pro-life centers. She just really tripled down on abortion. And she sort of tried to pretend like the U.S. had abortion laws that were similar to Ireland or Italy or whatever that was, and we can poke holes in that, all sorts of problems with it. But she said, we are for abortion here. I'm super Catholic, and I'm very pro-abortion. I'm not – she she would not talk about the, the fire bombings. And then she said, any other questions on other subjects, I'm not going to be addressing that. And very dutifully, obediently, to my knowledge, the news media never asked her again. She She just – didn't want to address it. There was no condemnation. Then there was no outcry over the lack of condemnation, and they all just moved on. And you just compare that with what we're seeing right now involving her husband, and I guess it doesn't bother you as much as it bothers me, but it does. It does.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm Lutheran, not Catholic. Happy Reformation Day, by the way. <laughs> but I'm smart enough to know that it's actually not Catholic to support the firebombing of Catholic churches or the firebombing and arson and vandalism at maternal care centers. That's not a Catholic position. That's not a Roman Catholic position. Um, But it wasn't just that, where she didn't want to deal with that question at all, and she didn't condemn the violence against people who take care of unborn children. You might recall in 2020, when she was asked about the riots that caused $2 billion worth of damage um, in cities across the country, she said, people will do what they do she has yep. a long record of supporting political violence and that doesn't mean that it's okay that she's a target of it but the idea that we're now going to pretend that that didn't exist is is oh, and also just and I like the like
3: standards also- like these people must condemn and if they don't condemn they're part of the problem and then when the shoe's on the other foot the rules are completely different molly hemingway on the guy benson show we'll be right back I'm Guy Benson. Welcome back to The Guy Benson Show. I don't pay a lot of attention to newspaper endorsements in political races because usually they're pretty predictable. Newspapers, especially liberal ones, always endorse Democrats. Occasionally you'll see one that raises eyebrows because it's a little bit out of step with expectations or might hold a little bit of greater weight in a contest that is closely watched. For that reason, I want to tell you about the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette Endorsing over the weekend Dr. Oz in the U.S. Senate race. Post Gazette, the biggest newspaper in Western Pennsylvania. And I will read you part of what the editors write. They say neither candidate has experience as a U.S. Senator. Given the lack of substance during the campaign, many voters will have to make a leap of faith on November 8th. We believe Mr. Oz, that's doctor to you, is the better bet for Pennsylvania. A retired cardiothoracic surgeon. Oz, 62, led the Emmy Award-winning Dr. Oz show for 13 years. Mr. Fetterman, 53, has one term as Pennsylvania's lieutenant governor, a job with few official responsibilities aside from serving as acting governor whenever the governor leaves the state. He is the former mayor of Braddock, a borough of 2,000 residents. Although the job paid $150 a month, Mr. Fetterman could make it, in effect, a full-time position Because of his family's support. Mr. Fetterman's health, he suffered a serious stroke in May, is not the issue. His lack of transparency, however, in refusing to release his medical records is troubling. It suggests an impulse to conceal and a mistrust of the people. All candidates for a major elective office should release their medical records, as did Oz. If you want privacy, don't run for public office. The Post-Gazette editorial continues. Mr. Fetterman's life experience and maturity also are concerns. He has lived off his family's money for much of his life. This has allowed him to do some good things, including mentoring disadvantaged young people and working to improve community policing and economic development in Braddock. Except crime actually got worse in that city on his watch. Businesses shut down. The hospital closed down. There was not economic development. It is a very depressed, failing municipality. That's just my side editorial. The Pittsburgh Post-Gazette editorial, though, continues, quote, that work, along with his six-foot-eight frame, shaved head and tattoos, attracted national media attention. Still, Mr. Fetterman, despite his hoodies and shorts, has little experience in holding real jobs or facing the problems of working people. That is putting it politely. They say in 2013, as the mayor of Braddock, Mr. Fetterman, after hearing gunshots, pulled a shotgun on an unarmed black jogger. It was, we believe, an honest mistake. Still, it's troubling that Fetterman never apologized for it. And during Tuesday's debate, confronted with his 2018 statement that he didn't support fracking, Mr. Fetterman still said with a straight face that he always supported fracking. At the very end of the piece, here's how the editors conclude. In a race on which much depends and little is certain, Mehmet Oz has shown he is better equipped to lead and deliver for Pennsylvania. And I think the fact that they were willing to go there on Fetterman's lack of work, his very light work experience, and just sort of the core of who he is, I'm sure did not sit well with a lot of people on the left because they are used to a whitewash on behalf of Fetterman, who's just, you know, this guy who had a difficult health circumstance, but they're all rooting for him. And they are averting their eyes. And attacking anyone who refuses to do so from some very glaring realities about John Fetterman and his enormous disqualifying deficiencies, almost all of which have nothing to do with the stroke that he suffered or its after effects. But the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette took inventory of both of the candidates, really dug into Fetterman's shortcomings, and decided to endorse Oz, whether that has any influence or impact on the race I don't know. I'm slightly skeptical. But it's also kind of like a bit of a permission slip. Hey, this is maybe the way things are trending. Are we really going with this guy Fetterman? Maybe not. And a lot of the post-debate polling suggests that there are very significant doubts and hesitancies about Fetterman, as there should be. That race is a toss-up. It continues to move in Oz's direction, and it is getting down to nail-biting crunch time in the Keystone State. When we come back, I want to shift to New York and Florida, where there was some interesting interplay politically and a very silly controversy down in the Sunshine State that we will play audio about and react to. That's all coming up on The Guy Benson Show.
2: Talking about the issues you care about.
3: Guy Benson. It's the Guy Benson Show, guybensonshow.com. Free podcast every day. Thank you for listening. Eight days away from the midterm elections. And if, let's say, eight months ago, you had told me that we would be hearing a speech like this in the final week and a half before an election, given who is speaking, where he's speaking, and about whom he's speaking, I would have said this doesn't make any sense. What is going on? And yet, here we are. This is cut 29, Long Island, New York, over the weekend. You'll probably recognize the voice.
6: I think it's great in politics when you don't have to choose between the lesser of two evils. You can actually support a very strong, capable candidate. And Lee Zeldin is that man. And he's the guy that can turn New York around. I've known him for a number of years. I've served with him. He's a veteran. He's a veteran. He's somebody that has very strong values. And most importantly, he is capable of exercising leadership. And that's what you need more than anything else, and especially out of the governor's office.
3: That is the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, who is up for re-election this year, campaigning in New York for the Republican gubernatorial nominee in Lee Zeldin. Because the race apparently in New York has gotten close enough that the Democrats are Genuinely worried about it. How do we know this? They've deployed some of their big names to New York on behalf of Kathy Hochul. The Democratic Governors Association, the DGA, I guarantee you on their list of scenario planning, they did not have needing to spend money statewide in New York. As part of their 2022 game plan at all, they had allocated her, Hochul and company, zero dollars, I would imagine, because it's New York. New York. 20, 25-point win should be easy for the Dems. Well, here we are. Reported over the weekend that the DGA has just sort of at the last minute, the 11th hour, frantically cobbled together a super PAC that they can pour some money into and try to bail out Kathy Hochul. And things are so concerning in New York and apparently so strong-looking for the Republicans in Florida that Ron DeSantis feels comfortable leaving his state, leaving his own reelection campaign, And going to a deep blue state to try to help a Republican who might have a legitimate shot at winning the governorship in an upset. According to at least the last couple of polls, and who knows, right, all the caveats always apply. I have some doubts myself. But the last handful of polls suggest that DeSantis stands to win bigger. His margin in Florida will be bigger than the margin in New York. Florida, the famous swing state, battleground state. New York, the famous not swing state. But maybe things are different this year. So DeSantis was up there in New York over the weekend. Glenn Youngkin is there in the suburbs, Westchester County, today. That's very interesting. Why is DeSantis feeling so confident? Well, I think there's a few reasons. Not only does the polling show him up by roughly 10 points, which is bonkers, Like I can't just quickly glide past that. It is bonkers that you have a statewide office holder, especially one as polarizing and controversial, supposedly, as Ron DeSantis. Ahead by potentially double digits in a state like that is just mind-blowing. But that is where things stand at the moment. Plus, if you look at the early voting numbers in Florida, it is just gruesome stuff for the Democrats. They have to build their blue wall, theoretically, in the early voting, with the fear that the red wave on actual Election Day voters will come crashing through, which is what happened, for example, in 2020. Democrats had their lead. They built it up in the early voting. And then Trump voters came out in 2020, and Trump won the state by three points. Does the Election Day swamp of votes overwhelmed what the Democrats had banked in their lead? Well, right now, the Democrats' lead is negative. They are down in the early voting already. So uh, that is— Definitely a huge, flapping red flag, a warning sign for the Democrats down in Florida. That's probably part of the calculus that DeSantis is thinking about and weighing as he makes decisions like leaving his state to campaign for someone else. Here's another one. New York Post reporting this just the other day. Florida Republicans have registered nine new voters for every one new Democratic registration in the months leading up to the midterms. So in the final series of months heading into November, Republican new voter registrations outnumbered Democratic ones in the state of Florida nine to one. That is an operation doing the work, building a very powerful turnout machine and registration machine. So that's probably why Governor DeSantis felt like It was a good call on his part to go be a team player, campaign on behalf of Lee Zeldin, stump hard for him. He wasn't doing a bunch of self-aggrandizing stuff about Florida and, oh, look at me and all the things that we've done. He was really pumping Zeldin. And if he can help turn out the base and Republican voters in certain parts of New York and keep that margin getting closer and closer, you never know what might happen in the governor's race. But even if Hochul squeaks one out, boy, that really matters down ballot where you have six or seven important house races that could go either way, at least theoretically in the state of New York. Now, there was another incident over the weekend. I don't want to call it an incident. A little kerfuffle, a little hubbub involving Governor DeSantis, who was very busy. He was up in New York for Zeldin. He was at the Florida-Georgia game, the world's largest cocktail party, they call it. Big rivalry game. Unsurprisingly, the Bulldogs won going away because it's just a really good team. And the Gators are still not quite there. But the game takes place every year in Jacksonville. And DeSantis was in attendance to do the coin flip at the start of the game. He did the coin toss as governor. And while he was also up in Jacksonville, another item on his agenda was a surprise cameo appearance at a country music concert, which has now become something of a thing. So here's what happened. Luke Bryan... Is a country music star. He had a big, huge crowd, thousands of people up in Jacksonville. And at one point, he was talking about raising money for Hurricane Ian relief. We're not far removed from Hurricane Ian. There are still communities absolutely devastated, especially down in southwest Florida. So Luke Bryan was coming to the state, although the opposite side of the state. And he said, you know, so long as we're here, let's go ahead and raise some money to help these people. And then, to the surprise of the crowd, he brought on stage the governor who was there to help in this effort. And first, let me tell you about the reaction on the Internet. A lot of people were very angry. How dare Luke Bryan bring Ron DeSantis on stage and embrace him so close to an election? Shame on him, right? All the left-wing whining got going, and it grew into a loud enough chorus that Luke Bryan felt compelled to respond. He put out a statement that we'll tell you about here in a second. But let's just stop for a moment. I can think off the top of my head. In the last few weeks alone, Harry Styles appeared with Beto O'Rourke and endorsed him. A non-American, by the way, went down and had some thoughts on the Texas governor race. Fine. You do you, Harry. And he loves Beto O'Rourke down in Texas. At a Lizzo concert... Latto brought out Stacey Abrams to deliver a lecture on abortion, and she was up there on stage holding up some placard with the P word emblazoned around her, which is an interesting choice of optics. That was in Atlanta, right? So another culturally influential artist and event promoting the Democrats. Dave Matthews is traveling. Basically, this is what he does every couple of years. He just like goes on tour with Democrats. To help them actually draw people to rallies. Like he'll play his songs from the 1990s and everyone will be like, woo, and then you're there for the Democrats too. He's done that for Tim Ryan in Ohio. He's doing it for John Fetterman in Pennsylvania. I mean, you'll get some of the usual cranky right-wingers being like, oh, here's Holly Weird again doing their thing. This is what celebrities do. And people on the left get all excited because this is what they are entitled to, right? Cultural relevance, pop culture, that is their realm. Everything is supposed to be on their side except for a handful of institutions, which they attack relentlessly. So here when a popular musical artist has the gall to bring out a Republican politician onto the stage to help him raise money for hurricane relief, that is seen as an unforgivable affront. To the birthright of leftists, which is they're the ones that control the culture. They're the cool ones who have this kind of cachet. And Republicans and conservatives aren't allowed to have it. And if anyone ever breaks the rule or challenges the rule, they lose it. And there was enough losing it online that, as I mentioned, Luke Bryan put out a statement. I'll read you the statement here. But I want you to first listen to what it sounded like inside the arena when he announced DeSantis. There's a lot of people on Twitter and social media, very angry, always angry, bitter, seething, creating hashtags, demanding boycotts or whatever. You know who didn't seem all that angry? You know who didn't seem bitter or upset? The crowd in Florida, in Jacksonville, when their governor showed up, cut 18.
4: We're going to have some fun and we're going to raise some money tonight for the great state of government. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the stage, Governor Ron DeSantis.
3: Now, perhaps the spin is that was screaming of terror before Halloween. Maybe that's what we just heard. Terrified shrieks that Ron DeSantis would be in their midst No, he came out, he was throwing baseball caps into the crowd, big smile, people cheering wildly, phones out, taking photos, taking videos. The place went crazy. But because we live in crazy times, a lot of people were mad. So here's Luke Bryan with a statement yesterday. Quote, I typically don't respond to stuff when I'm getting run down on a social media platform, but here's the deal. I understand Governor DeSantis is a very polarizing figure. But I grew up in a country where if a governor asks you if they can come and raise awareness to help victims of a natural disaster, you help. I've generally stayed out of politics throughout my career. I knew people would chatter about this. But for me, the more important piece was if I'm going to come back here a few days after a large portion of people have been affected by a natural disaster in a state where people have been good to me, this felt right. Raise awareness have a little fun between the Georgia and Florida college fans before the game and do what I love on stage. This is all I am saying about this. I'll be outdoors with my boys. Enjoy your Sunday. Love y'all. Go dogs. And then he had a message at the bottom saying text DISASTER to 20222 to support. So let me just say, I think it's absurd that he felt like he had to do this at all. Any sort of clarification or statement like, oh, this is why – I had the governor of the state on to help me raise money to help people affected by the hurricane. It should be self-evident. There should be no requirement for clarification. Hell, maybe Luke Bryan is just conservative and he likes Ron DeSantis. And guess what? That's fine, too. Democrats get to have this all the time with various movie stars and celebrities and musical artists and bands. Republicans get to have that, too, from time to time. But in this case, it's not even what Luke Bryan is saying. He's not getting into Desantis's politics. He allows that he's polarizing. But then he basically said, I hear you. Duly noted. It was the right thing to do. There was no apology here, which I am gratified to see. No groveling. No prostrating himself, begging for forgiveness, no denunciation of Ron DeSantis. He was just like, yep, I hear that some people are mad. This is why I did it. End of story. I'm not going to discuss it further. Take care. Go dogs. We live in very, very ridiculous times. And Ron DeSantis, by the way, so polarizing that there's a pretty good chance, according to the polls, that he will win by a larger margin in Florida than the Democratic governor in New York will win in her reelection. If she wins. Maybe we need to redefine polarizing. We got a break. When we do, since we mentioned the Florida Georgia game, let's talk about what happened in Georgia last night. A soundbite you need to hear next.
2: Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show.
3: Welcome back to the Guy Benson Show. Let's talk Georgia politics real quick. I see the final poll from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution before the election just came out earlier today. Brian Kemp up, what, seven or eight points I saw with a majority, and Herschel Walker ahead by one point. And some of my people that I know down in Georgia think that Herschel very well could be ahead on election night, and there's a chance that he could avoid a runoff. That might be a little bit optimistic, but I guess we'll see. It probably doesn't help that Stacey Abrams is circling the drain along with her lies about election voter suppression. Jim Crow, President Biden calling the new law worse than Jim Crow. Well, there's all-time record turnout. And her explanation is, well, that doesn't mean there isn't suppression. Well, actually, yes, it does. (laughs) So she lied, a racially tinged, disgraceful lie, and the lie is being blown up in real time before our eyes. At the final debate in that contest, which was last night, I didn't realize they had another debate, but they had another one last night, Kemp and... Abrams this exchange got a lot of attention they were talking about crime and law enforcement Kemp was touting his support and endorsements among law enforcement in the state unlike Stacey Abrams and she had a frustrated retort to that cut six
8: men and women in law enforcement know who is going to be with them who has had their back and will continue to have their back and that is me. And that's why we have the endorsement of 107 sheriffs around this state.
1: As I pointed out before, I'm not a member of the good old boys club. So, no, I don't have 107 sheriffs who want to be able to take black people off the streets, who want to be able to go without accountability. I don't believe every sheriff wants that. But I do know that we need a governor who believes in both defending law enforcement, also, but also defending the people of Georgia.
3: Did you catch that? He said, well, I don't have 107 sheriffs who want to take black people off the streets. Kemp is pointing out he has the endorsement of 107 sheriffs. She has zero. And her response basically is, well, they're racists. They are motivated by racial animus. They just want to round up black people. That's what these sheriffs are up to, which is why they're endorsing him and not me. What a disgusting smear of law enforcement from a desperate, losing candidate. Very generously, she does say, I don't believe every sheriff wants that. Oh, that's so kind, so magnanimous. Not every sheriff is a huge racist, but probably most of them are, which is why he got their endorsement and none of them gave it to me because they're racists. Just awful. That's her big closing argument, racist law enforcement. And just like she loves revising history and gaslighting us on a whole bunch of things, like she was blaming Brian Kemp for costing Atlanta the all-star game when she did that, she also wants people to— forget the words that have come out of her own mouth, for example, on defunding the police. Here's what she said last night, accusing Kemp of lying, then a quick flashback in Cut Eight.
1: I believe in public safety. I did not say, and nor do I believe in defunding the police. He is lying again. And I've never said that I believe in defunding the police. I believe in public safety and accountability.
8: Miss Abrams on CNN got asked the question, would she defund the police, and she said, Yes, we have to reallocate resources. That means
3: defunding the police. Who's lying here? Let's check it. Cut nine.
1: So yes to some defunding. We have to reallocate resources. So yes.
3: So yes. That was Stacey Abrams in her own words. And I guess it's a lie to bring it up now because it's politically inconvenient to her. It is transparent and it is pitiful. I wonder if it's also racist to notice that. Seems like that's her response to everything. Final hour of the Guy Benson show coming up. Howie Kurtz is here on the media, their response to Elon Musk taking over Twitter, and this crazy Paul Pelosi political violence narrative. We'll get to all of that coming up.
2: O'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson.
3: It's the Happy Hour here on the Guy Benson Show, Monday edition. Happy Halloween. I'm Guy Benson. Appreciate you tuning in every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern time, then 5 to 6, our final hour is the happy hour. Brought to you by the Finnish long drink. Delicious beverage, our sponsor here. Thelongdrink.com. You can find out more. You can see where they're sold near you. You can order online. Thelongdrink.com. Always drink responsibly, 21 plus only. In fact, I have to tell you, if you didn't see it on my social media yesterday, one of our listeners, he and his significant other, Dressed up as the long drink for Halloween. He was the black can. She was the red can. It is very impressive stuff. I shared it at Guy P. Benson on Twitter and Instagram, and I sent it along to our buddies over at the long drink as well. They got a kick out of it. So props to that. Our website is GuyBensonShow.com, GuyBensonShow.com, where the podcast is always free of charge on demand. Also follow the show on social media at Guy Show Twitter and Instagram. Joining us now is Howard Kurtz, host of Fox News Channel's Media Buzz every Sunday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern. He's got his podcast as well, Media Buzz Meter, at foxnewspodcast.com. I follow him on Twitter, at Howard Kurtz. Howie, welcome back.
7: Hello, Guy P. Benson.
3: I wanted to start, since you're using my Twitter handle, with this question we've been asking all of our guests today. This is the rumor, at least, that Elon Musk and the new management at Twitter, they are considering charging people a fee To maintain their blue checkmark badge on Twitter, their verification, if that came to pass, and right now it is unsubstantiated, but if they tried it, would you, Howie Kurtz, pay money to get a blue checkmark or keep a blue checkmark next to at Howard Kurtz?
7: I probably would. But supposedly, there are other benefits uh, to doing this, access to whatever. I don't know. Look, Elon Musk has a problem. He just reluctantly spent $44 billion to buy a, a website that is probably worth a fraction of that because of the tumble in tech stocks and also because Twitter, you know, the, the whole uh, long litigation back and forth has really hurt its values. He's got to figure out a way to make some money. He's taking on a lot of debt. So if he's going to charge uh, 20 bucks or whatever it is for the most dedicated tweeters, those people like media people and political types who use it constantly for their profession, um, I don't think that's going to get him out of the hole, but – He's got to find some advertising, especially because this whole business, you know, he's being attacked again for being a fascist, for being a threat. And, you know, he's owned the thing for five minutes, and now people are blaming him <laughs> for everything. And he's saying, well, you know, I'm going to have a content moderation board, and it's going to meet. We're not going to read, state anybody. He's run into reality, which is he's got to make advertisers happy, or the advertisers are going to go away.
3: Yeah, and we're seeing some of the critics already targeting the advertisers, which is what they do. So often when these mobs assemble to try to get someone canceled or to hurt them or to cause economic pressures or pain for political reasons, and I would just say, Howie, on the blue check mark thing, if I keep that blue check mark because of work, I'm happy to allow work to pay for it. <laughs> I am definitely not going to shell out any money personally uh, to keep that little emblem. I'm not that attached to it, but if, if the powers that be – at one or both of my employers, want me to keep it for whatever reason. I I wouldn't be opposed to it. But you sort of opened the door on this, Howie, the pile-on, the freak-out. I don't know how much time you've spent on Twitter over the weekend these last couple days. You would think, among a lot of people, including a lot of blue check marks, journalists, activists, celebrities, you would think that the world is coming to an end because Elon Musk is now the owner of Twitter. It is a meltdown, Howie, that is... To me, so outsized, so disproportionate, goes way beyond any sense of, I don't know, like perspective. I wonder what you make of it.
7: What I make of it is that the left, and I now have to include most of the media, uh, they like the idea of there being lots of content moderation, kicking people off, uh, expelling them, shadow banning them because they don't really believe in free speech anymore. You know, Elon Musk, when he first surfaced as the guy who was going to save Twitter, said he was going to be a free speech absolutist. Now, as I pointed out, I think he's going to have to modify that somewhat, and he's a little bit worried about, about the ads. But, I mean, the independent had a thing, Twitter is dead, 2006 to 2022, all because of Elon Musk. He had not done anything yet. Had, apparently, there's been a surge in racist tweets. It's Elon Musk's fault. None of this can actually be tied directly to him, but it is – uh, all this hand ringing, And the Washington Post, which, by the way, is owned by another billionaire by the name of Jeff Bezos, uh, actually had a thing on, here's how you can protect your information. Here's how you can get off Twitter. Uh, so Bezos is considered good by the people who think that billionaires shouldn't buy social media uh, with Amazon. And, of course – Elon, and Elon's made mistakes, and maybe we'll get to that in a moment, uh, is considered a a fascist and a threat to society, a threat to democracy, and all that. It is ludicrous.
3: It is very silly, and it's also very insular, right? People making these big, dramatic departure announcements. Oh, I can no longer stay here in good conscience. Like, all right, fine, bye. We'll see if you actually stay gone or if you come back. Because ultimately it is this sort of chaotic, dysfunctional, hyper-online town square that people are addicted to. My experience has not been really dramatically different in the last couple of days. And I just think the overwrought response is just exhausting. It's way too much. And I do wonder if everyone will sort of have their little tantrum and then move on. This is the shiny object that everyone's mad at, right? This is the official thing to be mad at. For a couple days, and there'll be another one that comes down the pike pretty soon, and then they'll move on, and maybe he's out of the spotlight for a while. I think one of the things that you just maybe alluded to was his tweet in response to Hillary Clinton on this Paul Pelosi attack. People were really upset about that. I think it came down, but that sort of transitions us, at least, Howie, into this other topic, which is speaking of media freakouts, the Pelosi attack in San Francisco. I have said repeatedly that it is appalling. The person responsible should have the book thrown at him. There should be very serious consequences. This needs to be harshly punished. It's totally unacceptable. I think that should be the baseline for everyone, and we wish Mr. Pelosi a very speedy and complete recovery. Howie, the extent to which and the speed with which almost the entire news media decided... That this was right wing political violence and therefore Republican rhetoric and campaign ads and attacks against Speaker Pelosi and Democrats are unconscionable and in some way tied to this or responsible for this or irresponsible in the wake of what we've seen. It was just this hive mind stampede to browbeat and censor and stifle and how As of today's broadcast, we still don't even have definitive information that this attack was political in any way, let alone right wing. I mean, we saw the charges come down today from the feds and clearly Speaker Pelosi was being targeted. So you could say that's political, but the nature of the political motive, whether it came from one side or the other, that is not established to this day, to this moment.
7: That's exactly right. Uh, you know, this guy clearly has huge mental health problems, and the Washington Post reports was tweeting that he was tweeting and posting on a blog that he was suicidal and putting up grisly images of death. He's all over the map. He's anti-trans, he's anti-Jewish, he's anti-black, but he's also and he's also anti-media. But he's also posting stuff from Mike Lindell, the pillow guy, about the fallen election. I I don't think he has a coherent political
3: philosophy. Right, like a new, and, nudist guy. He lives in some hippie commune. His associates say he was left-wing in a lot of ways. It just sounds like a grab bag of crazy.
7: Right. And you know, on my show on Media Buzz yesterday, I played a couple of sound bites. Uh, one from Joy Reid and one from Chris Hayes, both of MSNBC, saying that it's Trump's fault. You know, Donald Trump, uh, it's January 6th continued because of the where's Nancy chat. Of course, this guy wasn't even smart enough to know that Nancy Pelosi was still in Washington, so he ended up taking a hammer to her 82-year-old husband. Uh, And and so to try to get any kind of coherent philosophy, but also to blame uh, Donald Trump, you know, you can say, "Well, Trump created the climate," but you know, it. P- Pelosi is, uh, went into the hospital and he had surgery for a fractured skull. And I have people writing to me saying, "Oh, this is another Jesse Smollett." Well, no, it's not. The doctors say he was seriously injured. He's lucky right. to have recovered. They say the su- surgeries were successful. So to blame Trump, and then on the right, you have, well, this is just an example of crime out of control, and that may be a fair point. But everybody's using it, you know, it took about two minutes of yeah, this is too bad. And everybody using it for their own partisan purposes, but especially on the left.
3: Yeah, I mean, but you had the anchor of the CBS News signature Sunday show, Face the Nation, going hard after a Republican campaign chief about the fire Pelosi ads and tweets and oh these images are bad and the words are disturbing. We have no idea what motivated this crazy person to do what he did. We don't know if it was right wing politics, left wing politics, some combination of politics or no politics at all, which is what ended up being the case in the Gabby Gifford shooting years back with the killer or the attempted assassin of her. He killed other people in that incident that turned into a giant political fight with the left blaming the right and conservative rhetoric and Sarah Palin, the map with targets on it, all of it. And we had all these lectures about civility, and they all sat together, not in their usual partisan aisle separation for the State of the Union as this big symbolism of getting to work together and unity and so on and so forth. And then when the dust settled, he was just a schizophrenic guy obsessed with her who had no political Dog in the fight or no political motive whatsoever. And yet for weeks and weeks and weeks, it was a giant political blame fest about the right wing and their rhetoric when it didn't actually align with the facts of the case. And it happens somewhat regularly where there's just the narrative. Right wing rhetoric is dangerous whenever anything happens that might, might have been inspired by or somehow attributable to right wing rhetoric or Republicans The media, all together with one voice, goes all in on that. And then when the opposite happens, where there's, I think, even more substantial evidence that maybe left-wing rhetoric is out there getting a little bit overheated and over the top. And then there are acts of political violence or assassination attempts and plots or what have you. It's just a very quick, perfunctory note from the media. Isn't this concerning? And they move right on. And we never get treated to this high-decibel hand-wringing about, you know, the importance of moderating our tone or what have you. In case you can't tell, Howie, this is one of the things that really, really gets under my skin when it comes to media double standards and biases. And I think it is exactly an example of why so many Americans do not trust the media because they view, broadly speaking, the news media as corrupt and as activists and dishonest. And it's hard to argue in this circumstance with that, premise
7: i was glad you brought that up because the shooter in phoenix it turned out never even saw the sarah palin famous crosshairs map and i wrote a piece the next day saying it's unfair to blame this on sarah palin she wasn't literally calling for anybody to be shot and i got a lot of heat from a lot of our my colleagues in the business saying oh no no you don't understand and weeks later they said you know what you were right it really wasn't sarah palin
3: well some of them never admitted it and the new york times resurrected the smear years later again it was so built into the dogma of right-wing rhetoric and violence that they didn't even remember that it was a giant lie that they participated in. All right, Howie, let's take a quick break. I don't want to shortchange this conversation. Let's continue it as soon as we return. It's The Guy Benson Show.
2: The Guy Benson Show. More next.
3: Welcome back to The Guy Benson Show. Howie Kurtz, my guest, host of Media Buzz on Fox News Channel. And Howie, we're talking about the news media, political violence, finger-pointing, and narratives, and I felt like I may have cut you off right before the last break. I wanted to let you finish your point.
7: There was a lot of coverage, I thought, at least for a few days, of the uh, crazed gunman who shot up the Republican in the congressional uh, baseball practice and almost killed Steve Police five years ago in Virginia. Uh, but he was a Rachel Maddow fan. Now, nobody in the mainstream media said, "Well, you know, Rachel Maddow. Maybe
3: her rhetoric has inspired but Bernie no, Sanders." I mean, right? He's a Bernie guy. Yeah. And And no one was out there saying, well, maybe, hey, the the left-wingers keep saying that the Republicans want to repeal Obamacare, and they're going to kill people. People are going to die from these Republican policies, and the tax cuts are going to kill people. That's what the Democrats say all the time. There was no sense in the media after that attempted mass assassination of Republicans that maybe Republicans were the victims here and Democrats ought to cool it, and the Democrats' media allies ought to cool it with their rhetoric. That was not part of the national conversation And to me, Howie, looking back, the coverage was box checking. It was not flood the zone day after day, national conversation. In fact, my very good friend, Mary Catherine Hamm, lived right by the baseball field. And she said within two days of the shooting, all the news trucks were gone. Two days in Washington, D.C., the surrounding area, the news trucks were gone. Everyone had moved on. And that has not been the case here in the Paul Pelosi attack where we don't know what the motive was here as opposed to the congressional baseball shooting, which was obviously political.
7: I think that's a very good point. And look, I don't have any trouble figuring out what the motive was, except, you know, can you even take seriously a motive with somebody who's clearly so mentally disturbed? And I have to add, there's a lot we don't know. I will say... That a lot of uh, Republicans and conservatives who don't agree with Nancy Pelosi on anything have been gracious in saying this was terrible, this was awful, it shouldn't have anybody expressing sympathy. But there have been some who have been circulating kind of sick jokes about it based on rumors, as with the Elon Musk tweet, which I was very disappointed in. Um, So I want want to make clear that not everybody is – playing the blame game, but enough people are, especially on MSNBC, where they just couldn't wait. I mean, the guy was barely out of surgery and they're like, oh, Donald Trump, it must be Donald Trump's fault.
3: Yeah, no, they did like in their primetime programming over the weekend. I saw a big, big conversation about right wing political violence. Like, well, we don't know if we just saw right wing political violence. It's like, hey, let's go program a whole hour on this premise, whether it's true or not. It's the thing that we want to say and that we already believe. So we're going to do it. I mean, that's just not Journalism, How? that's my last question, I guess, Howie, is just the journalistic ethics. You would think here's a situation. It's a very bizarre story. I still have some questions about exactly what happened, how it happened, how it went down. They've changed the official account a few times with the police coming out to clarify various things. But you had someone get into the Speaker of the House's private home and attack her husband with a hammer. After the police had already arrived, again, some of the timeline is strange, but it seems like what journalists ought to do is focus on getting all of the details of the incident correct, reporting what happened, letting the investigation proceed, and just be accurate. And there was almost no effort at that. It seems like at least at the national level, the press skipped all of the due diligence journalism steps of figuring out who, what, where, when, why – and went straight to who can we blame with a predetermined outcome and a predetermined answer to that question. And they just slid right past all the journalism, straight to the blame fest, right before an election.
7: It's utterly partisan. It's utterly political. It's utterly sickening. And yes, of course they should do all the things you said. But we just live in a culture now, and particularly with the anti-free speech left and many in the media, it's just like, okay, how can we turn this into ratings that will make our base happy? Who I know we'll just attack it. It's, it's an extension of January sixth, and they show footage of January sixth, uh, yep. and, and it's it's despicable.
3: I couldn't have said it better. We'll leave it at that. Howie Kurtz, host of Media Buzz, every Sunday morning, 11 a.m. Eastern time on Fox News Channel. Check out his podcast, Media Buzz Meter, at Fox News Podcasts. Howie, always good to have you here. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Guy. The Guy Benson Show is back right after this. You're
2: listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson.
3: The happy hour continues here on The Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you here. Earlier in the program, we talked to Molly Hemingway, our Fox News colleague, editor-in-chief at The Federalist. Boy, we had a lot to talk about. She was charged up today, so am I frankly, on this issue. Listen to part of the conversation we had with Molly Hemingway. I see that on our two competitors right now, CNN is talking about the Pelosi attack. MSNBC is talking about the Pelosi attack. Fox, we're talking about the midterms and the dynamics of the midterms. Look, obviously it's news if someone breaks into the Speaker's house and assaults her husband. And there were charges filed just today while we were on the air. That news broke. The FBI says that the suspect wanted to kidnap uh, kidnapped the Speaker of the house. She wasn't home and ended up having this this strange Confrontation, and Then it turned violent with the speaker's husband. There are details that were reported by the press that have since been clarified or retracted. There's still stuff about the timeline here that is very strange to me overall. But it looks like this was someone with bad intentions who showed up to try to hurt the speaker, ended up assaulting her husband. It's awful. I hope he spends a lot of time in prison uh, for a very serious assault. We are just learning today, Molly, within minutes of you know, just minutes ago, that there was at least an intention on this guy's part to do harm to Speaker Pelosi. We don't know why. We don't know exactly what the motive was. As you go through and look at this man's background, and I realize this is a big preamble to my question, but I think it's important to lay some of this out. Some journalists are actually doing the legwork of going around and finding things out about this man who, according to our colleagues here at Fox, is an illegal immigrant who overstayed his visa. He's Canadian. He's lived in the San Francisco Bay Area for a long time. He's in this like left wing hippie commune. He's done a bunch of nudist protests against war and other things. He also has posted a bunch of crazy conspiratorial Content, Some of which might be categorized as right wing. Some might be categorized as more left wing. It seems like he's just all over the map. People who know him, including an ex, say that he is deeply mentally ill. He thought he was Jesus Christ for the better part of a year. He's also gone on rants against Christians. Uh, There's apparently some very serious drug use and maybe a drug addled situation. That is a very complicated backdrop to this incident involving this individual almost none of which was reflected in the national coverage of what happened. They just skipped, Molly. They skipped the journalism and straight to the blame game that because it was Speaker Pelosi's house, it must be political violence and it must be right-wing political violence and it must be inspired by right-wing or Republican rhetoric and anti-Pelosi TV commercials or whatever. And, I mean, they – it was like nanoseconds from the attack happening – to the finger-pointing starting, totally independent from any evidence, which is still up in the air in a lot of respects. And, Molly, it drives me nuts because they do it every single time. When the fact pattern doesn't actually fit their narrative, they don't care. And when the fact pattern actually does sort of fit their narrative, but in reverse, they ignore it and drop the story as quickly as possible. And I'm just sort of beside myself when I see this. It's like exhibit A – of why I think there's a lot of deserved, deep-seated contempt and mistrust for a whole lot of the news media. And with that, I will give you the floor because I've been ranting here.
1: Well, I do think it would be very frustrating to watch what the media did if you still had any confidence in their ability to report news uh, I've I've given up on that a long time ago, so it it almost doesn't frustrate me. It's just more what I expect. Like, if they try to assassinate Brett Kavanaugh, that's a story that doesn't even get put on the front page of The Washington Post. If uh, some guy tries to go after the Pelosi's, it's drop everything you're doing, cover nothing else every day, all day, until we get through the election. And, you know, I would hope everyone would hate any kind of violence against political figures and they should. I think it's a little frustrating for people that San Francisco is dealing with all sorts of crime similar to this type of crime. And what I mean by that is that this guy is clearly mentally disturbed. It it would not be unreasonable to think it's from a lifetime of very hard drug use. That's the kind of crime we're seeing in the homeless population or the um, less housed populations of San Francisco. People are having all sorts of difficulties with break-ins that don't even get responded to by the cops out there. There's, like, the defund the police movement. You've had corporations having to flee San Francisco. And you don't get the same level of concern for that when it's just normal people who are being terrorized by this type of situation as you do when it's it's this individual. And, I mean, it should be bigger news when the Speaker of the House is targeted, but not this much bigger news relative to what most Americans in big cities have been dealing with for a few years now.
3: That full exchange with Molly Hemingway and all of today's show, start to finish, available on demand for free on our podcast, GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch. it's Halloween, so we'll talk a tiny bit about candy, but I also want to discuss a show that we binged at our house over the weekend. It started late last week. We finished it actually on Friday. We didn't even make it to the weekend. We binged it so hard. It was really good. We'll talk about it when we come back.
2: For the full interview and more, go to guybensonshow.com.
3: Home stretch on this Halloween Monday on the Guy Benson Show, guybensonshow.com. That's our website. The podcast is always free. USA today with a story about the most popular candies. In each of our 50 states, we don't have time to go through all of them, but they did rank the top 10 overall across the country according to data at candystore.com. I don't know how definitive or exhaustive that is, but for what it's worth, here are the top 10. Number 10, candy corn. That's a red flag to begin with. You're telling me candy corn is a top 10 favorite candy in America? No. No. This seems like fake news, but we need the content, so I'll continue anyway. Number nine, Tootsie Pops. As a kid, I liked the lollipop, but not the Tootsie Roll inside. I don't like Tootsie Rolls. So I would eat the lollipop until it got down to the Tootsie Roll and then discard. Number eight, Snickers. That checks out. Number seven, Hershey's Kisses. I like them especially around the holidays. They do the commercials where they're little bells the Christmas season. Number six, Sour Patch Kids. I am the hardest of no's. Everything about that candy is completely disgusting to me. No, no, no. But I know people like them, but you can have them. You keep them. Number five is Hot Tamales. Is that is that a candy? I'm not even aware of that. Maybe it's a blind spot that I have. Number four is Starburst. Number three is M&M's. I prefer peanut m ms of course. Number two, Skittles, almost as bad as Sour Patch Kids. Awful. And then number one, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, which I can get behind. Not a big candy person. Of the top ten, I sort of like one, two, three, four of them. So maybe I'm a little below average in terms of the sweet tooth. Wyatt, you seemed shocked and appalled by some of my responses.
0: Yeah, guy. I mean I, I think the best some of the best candy is like the sugary, gummy stuff. Like I, I gotta be in the mood for chocolate. And like like right now, I would want like Sour Patch Kids. I wouldn't mm. want a Hershey's bar or something. I would default to chocolate and I
3: really have to be in a mood for any other kind of candy and I rarely am. I like gummy bears from time to time, but that's about it. I'm also not a huge sweet tooth person In general, like if you're going out to dinner and you can have either an appetizer or a dessert, I'm going with the appetizer, skipping dessert. I like a little sweet at the very end, but even like one bite of something usually does the trick. Dan, candy preferences.
8: So I used to always be chocolate. My favorite growing up was Three Musketeers. I don't know why I liked like the fluffiness of it inside. And then oh, was
3: there marshmallow in there?
8: Kind of, yeah. It's like a chocolate yeah. marshmallow mix in there.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's then, why I didn't like it.
8: <laughs> and then I transitioned to peanut butter cups. Uh, peanut butter and chocolate, always. But in my later stage of life now, in my mid-30s, I love tart, like, gummy candy. Like, the ones you were just saying, hey, I love Sour Patch Kids, Oof. like, gummy ropes, things like that. I love them so much.
3: Oh, well, we would ask producer Christine what her... <laughs> preferences are. But she's off today for Halloween, eight days before a big election that we're covering here. That's fine. Also, we know that she prefers to drink her dessert, right? That's well-established anyhow. (laughs) Meanwhile, we mentioned this right before the break. Midweek last week, Adam and I started watching a show. And by the way, I thought about talking about it here in a previous homestretch or tweeting about it, but I can't do that anymore. When I'm watching a show, especially binge watching a show where people already know the outcome, I've had this happen in the past where I will say publicly that I'm getting into something and then people just to be jerks who don't like me will tweet spoilers at me and say, oh, so-and-so dies or this is how this ends. So now I can't even talk about it until it's over. So these absolute – well, I can't use that word. You can probably guess the word that I want to use. Those people, I won't let them ruin my fun and rob me of joy. So midweek last week, we started watching. I had seen some good reviews on social media. I think like the uh, Rotten Tomatoes score was really excellent. It is the reboot of a reality competition show that debuted, I want to say, around 2000 or 2001 called The Mole. I don't remember which network it was on originally, but it was, if memory serves, hosted by Anderson Cooper. I never watched it at the time. I vaguely remember its existence. Now it's back. It's on Netflix. It is hosted by another cable personality, cable news personality, Alex Wagner from MSNBC, who took over for Rachel Maddow. She is the host of this show, and she does a perfectly, I would say, serviceable job. That didn't really impact my enjoyment of the show at all. The premise, if you haven't heard of it, is as follows. There were, I want to say, a dozen or so contestants who all arrived in Australia. This season was filmed in Australia. And it is a group competition show where there are elaborate tasks that the group must complete together. And there's an elimination component to it. It's a little bit complicated to explain, but the twist, sort of the hook of the show – Hence the name of the show, The Mole, is that there is secretly someone among the contestants who is a saboteur. Someone who is trying to, without being too obvious about it, undermine the group's efforts and reduce the amount of money that they're able to earn through these challenges. And the whole show is based on who is the mole and who is able to correctly identify the mole and then survive to the very end to beat the mole and win the money. And there's a lot of intrigue. There are twists and turns. There's a lot of psychological games that are played, and there's gamesmanship among the contestants, people pretending to be the mole to try to bring suspicion upon themselves because strategically that's helpful to them. And some people who you feel like, oh, gosh, that has to be the mole, and then it is revealed that they're not. Because they get eliminated. The mole never gets eliminated and gets revealed in the finale. And part of what I liked about it is not just the prisoner's dilemma type challenges that they're given and opportunities where the good of the group is pitted against individual greed and the opportunity to undermine things and people can go lie to others and then look out for themselves. There's a lot of sort of intriguing little subplots along the way where you really get to see human nature. But the challenges themselves are also just really well executed and cool. Like the budget to produce this show must have been huge. They did not cut corners. There is one that's a prison break where they go into this antique, century old prison and they have to get out of the prison as a team. There's a bank heist in this old, old bank in like rural Australia. Those are just two examples. It was fabulous. And we raced through this thing. There are 10 episodes, I think like 45 minutes each or so, and by the end of Friday night, we were done. And we would talk in between the episodes, who do you think it is? It seems way too obvious that it's that person, right? Could that person be the mole, or is it just too obvious? What about that person? Then you start to come up with your own list of suspects and theories, and then sometimes they just crumble with surprising eliminations. Anyway, I understand the hype and the buzz around it. I would strongly recommend it. It is fun. Wyatt, you had not heard of this show, and I think the original was before your time anyway. Have I sold you to maybe give it a shot?
0: Yes, because you've you've gotten me to watch some other shows in the past, so I think I could give it a shot and, and feel confident in that
3: decision, yes. Give it like one or two episodes and see how you're feeling about it, but— I think it's visually stunning. It's really well shot. And it's just the intrigue and the betrayals and sort of these psychological games that are very, very fun in the process of also trying to figure out how are they going to make this money? How are they going to achieve whatever the objective is in any given episode? And they're very good, I will warn you, at cliffhangers where you feel like one more episode and then we're going to bed. And then at the very end of the episode, there's just an irresistible morsel that is dangled in front of you. And you just want to keep going. Very quickly, Wyatt, you were recommending earlier a show to me. What's it called White Lotus, something like that? Is that is that Netflix? No, HBO Max. Okay, HBO. And why should I watch it?
0: It's just very entertaining. Like, it's based on – They have two seasons now, and the first season was about just random different types of people going on vacation at the White Lotus Hotel in Hawaii, which is a fictional place. Um, And it's just the drama and the trials and tribulations of people going on vacation, and I find it very entertaining to watch. Is it suspenseful, like a mystery and a drama, or is it comedy? It's mostly comedy. There's some, some suspense as well. Uh, it's just, it's just to me, it's just entertaining. It's just it's a very well done, well written show. And this season, it's it's based out of uh, Sicily. That's where the White Lotus Hotel is in this season. Huh. So, Dan, have you watched either White Lotus or the Mole?
8: So I grew up with the Mole. So I was about thirteen when it came out, and we loved all those the OG. Sur- yeah, the OG is when it was like Survivor and all those things, Real World and all those things. I loved it. I have not watched the new Mole, but I will. Oh, you're gonna love it. The White Lotus, I did love. It's just like, it's one of those shows where it starts off like everything's normal and fine. People are just on vacation. And then it gets to like the darker underbelly issues that are going on with certain groups in the show and certain characters. And you start to realize that like not everything is as it seems. And they kind of all, is all not come well together. Is yes, it exactly. funny,
3: though? Because Wyatt, Wyatt is indicating that it's funny.
8: It's very funny. There's a lot lot of comedy. Um, I can't think of the main actor's name. He plays a dad in it. He's been in a bunch of stuff. But he's just so funny at, like, he just kind of is there on vacation getting drunk. And it's just really funny as a as a whole and just lots okay. of laughing. Well, I'm out writing it down.
3: White Lotus on HBO Max. Maybe add that to the queue. And then you guys can watch The Mole. And then... Get back to me. We should recommend this to Christine too. She would love it. By the way, if there was a mole on this show, we all know who the mole is. Not even close. It's Wyatt. Okay, we got to go back here tomorrow. Same time, same place for the Guy Benson show. Have a great night. Thank you for listening. Trick or treat. Happy Halloween.
7: The world of business moves fast. Stay on top of it with the Fox Business Rundown every Monday
2: and Friday. Listen to the Fox Business Rundown starting May 20th at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.